0: I can still smell the classroom. I can still remember the the hallway and how I would walk in, where I would sign my name. I remember walking into the classroom every Thursday during fourth and fifth grade. And I remember walking really quickly to get there. Uh, It was the highlight of my week. And it was only me. I, I don't recall ever walking over there with any other friends or classmates. I mean, it was an option for everybody, but, but it was something about uh, the way my fourth grade and fifth grade life mapped out that I got to do it. My elementary school, Sadekoy Elementary School, was right next door to the Douglas E. Penfield School. And at the Douglas E. Penfield School was a school for children with physical and developmental disabilities. And during fourth and fifth grade at our school, you had the option to to go over and to help. I don't remember how long, but you would walk yourselves over. Imagine that, walking walking yourself from one school to another. I signed my name. I would go down the hallway. and walk into this one particular classroom, and I loved going. There were two students that I spent those two years with, two students that I've probably never shared a verbal word with, but who've left an imprint on my life in in profound ways. just Thomas. Thomas uh, was uh, unable to use his legs or his hands. He couldn't put words together. And when I got to the room, his eyes would light up because he knew it was time to eat with me. And as a fourth grade student, I began to uh, feed him every week his applesauce and different kinds of food. And and I remember... um, I remember doing that and, and talking to him and, and him making sounds and, and smiling and his eyes. And I remember talking to his teacher trying to understand what my objective was. Was it just to get him fed and, and, and we were working on muscles in his mouth that if he could just receive the food a certain way and, and they were working on strengthening some muscles in his mouth so he would have some control, at least in this one part of his body. And then there was loose. Luce, uh, she loved to play basketball with me. She couldn't walk. She had these braces on her legs. She couldn't talk much. But in the playground, I got to take her out, wheel her out, and there was a, a lower basketball hoop. And she just giggled and laughed every time I pretended to do a slam dunk and I overshot the ball and was being goofy. And her noises, her joy, I can still hear it. I can still see and smell all the smells of Thomas. I can feel what it was like to be on that playground with Luce. And I also remember at a very early age, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have a relationship with God. We weren't necessarily a church-going family in the sense of, uh, of some. But I remember thinking there's something beautiful about these relationships, but there's also something not right. Like, why is it that I have all the ability of my body? Why is it that I can do all of these things? And, and these are just two of many in the school who had so many challenges. And I remember having a sense that that there would be redemption somehow for them. That there would be a day where, where Thomas could move all of his body and he could speak and he could feed himself and we could have a conversation. And I I think I started praying those kinds of ways in a a way. I don't know who I was praying to, but I was praying that what was broken in this beautiful friend of mine would be made right one day. And I remember playing with Luce in, in the same kind of thing, dreaming of the day where she would jump out of her chair and be able to shoot baskets and to run and to play tag with me. And even at an early age, I had some level of hope. Some level of hope that the, the difficult parts of this world and the broken parts of human beings and the broken parts of the, the whole world, that somehow there was a bigger story happening. That although this experience on earth is limited for all of us, because for Thomas and Luce, their limitations are quite clear, my own limitations were very clear at that time. And they continue to be more clear to me, my own disabilities you know, in theology and in church, we talk about this future hope as this eschatological hope, this vision of what it's going to be one day. When it's all said and done, and surely we've sung songs today that speak about heaven, that speak about life after death. I mean, it's Resurrection Sunday where we are remembering and celebrating that death did not have its final moment with jesus but that the resurrection brought forth a whole new reality not just for jesus and for the fulfillment of what god has promised throughout all of the scripture and through all of time but that there's, there's a resurrection reality for all of us because the brokenness in our world is just so clear i was driving just the other day to ventura actually to wish my mom a happy birthday with the boys from 10 feet away don't worry and we were driving past these fields in Moore Park. And I saw 70-year-old men, immigrant men, still working, still going to the field to pick the very fruits and vegetables that I will eat today. And I went, there's something not right about that. There's something not right about a 70-year-old man still having to bend down in this environment, in this world we live in right now. something not right. I hear the reports, you hear the reports, I even know one of the stories. We have a story here, unfortunately, of the worst part of this virus for so many is that many are dying alone. It doesn't seem right. The the not rightness of this world is so dark. It's so difficult. And we have to have some level of hope. In fact, all of us have some level of hope all the time. I, I hear it. When someone we love passes away, whether we have faith in Jesus or not, we have faith in something because we say things like, well, we'll see you on the other side. Or, or we'll talk to you again. Or you'll, you'll, you're with me. I can feel your presence. We all point forward to something. Even in our disbelief, we hold it as a faith as a value, as a truth, to say there's nothing. It's still some level of distant kind of, this is how it's all going to turn out. The text for today is a very um, weighty text in this context. In fact, there's plenty of churches, there are plenty of people talking about in the state of the world, and have we read the book of Revelation? And it seems like an odd text, potentially for Easter, but I think it's an appropriate text for us because the resurrection of Jesus is more than just a footnote in history. I mean, there are book after book, article after article, truth after truth that would, that would explain to many of you who go, I, how do you even believe in a resurrection? I, I, don't, I don't personally have trouble with that. I, I, I do at certain points, but in this moment right now, I have no trouble that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And so instead of using our short time together to to prove what I think is already proved, I mean, our whole human history calendar centers on this act of resurrection. It's only in recent years we've added the common era. It was before Christ and after the death of Christ. The resurrection sparked a movement and that movement is alive and well. We're gathered here today across the globe because it was true that Jesus rose from the dead. But the question is, The question is, why does the resurrection matter? And I'm going to argue, and the text is going to teach us that the resurrection matters because of Thomas. The resurrection matters because of Luce. The resurrection matters for those who are dying alone. The resurrection matters because of the creation that's broken in this world. Everything from the ozone to species dying out. There's so much death and darkness and difficulty around us. And resurrection matters because the resurrection of Jesus leads to a larger story of restoration. The book of Revelation is misunderstood. I think for so many, the book of Revelation, we think of it as a horror book, that it's somehow a a horror story that's supposed to inspire hope. But let's flip that. The book of Revelation is a story of hope in the face of horror. It doesn't motivate through horror to bring people to Jesus. It, It specifically is speaking to a group of people who were under, about to face incredible persecution and oppression of the likes that many of us will never even taste. People who would be burned at the stake because of their faith in Jesus. People who would be killed. People who, because of this book of Revelation and the future hope they found in the midst of their horror, that they would go to those places singing hymns with smiles on their face because of what was revealed to the writer John way back when that says in the midst of horror, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of the world not making sense, there is hope. And that hope can be found in the revelation of Jesus. The author of this book is the the author John. And and, and he even himself is writing from a desperate place. He's this beloved disciple. We, We got plenty of John in the New Testament. He's writing from being imprisoned on an island, his own private Alcatraz, alone and desperate, probably feeling quite stuck. And while he is in this exact condition, Jesus gives him a vision. Jesus gives him his own vision of what it will be like one day. What it will be like at the end and what Jesus is doing with all the brokenness and what the power of the resurrection means. It's somewhat of a grand picture of how things are and will be. And with that in mind, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We'll be in Revelation chapter 21 just for seven verses. Apocalyptic literature, literature to inspire, not to bring fear, bring hope, not horror. And John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true and he said to me it is done i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end and hear this to the thirsty i will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life those who victorious will inherit all this and i will be their god and they will be my children this is the word of the lord you may be seated and if you didn't stand, it's okay. How do we move from uh, resurrection to revelation? If you're familiar with your scriptures, if if you don't have a copy of the Bible, I encourage you to read a very important chapter in the book of First Corinthians. It's chapter 15. It's, it speaks to the reality of the resurrection, the centrality of the resurrection and the faith of those who follow Jesus, but it also begins to speak not just that the resurrection happened and how central it is to our doctrine and to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but, but 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to share that very question I've put out to us. What, why does it matter? What about when we die? What about the people who died before Jesus died? What about the people who died? What, about, what is this? I mean, it is a beautifully complex but inspiring chapter of the Bible that speaks to the reality of what we're celebrating today, the resurrection of Jesus. And I want you just to hear a little bit that, that will frame how we jump to Revelation. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And then the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead comes through a human as well. For as Adam, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But in this order, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then at the end of 15, we get what we have declared already today. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If I was to reduce this down to get us to Revelation, it's simply this, is that the resurrection of Jesus isn't just a neat kind of important footnote in the story of God. It has huge implications implications for life now and implications for how it all ends and what eternity will be like I think often we we reduce down the story of the resurrection that he's risen he's risen indeed as just a a factual piece of history and it is factual to me and to many but it's piece in history only points us towards a future here's what I want us to understand and to see What you and I believe about the future impacts how we live today. I mean, put that with anything. What we actually believe that will happen later impacts how we live now. And if our belief is that there's no real relevance outside of an awesome service on Easter to the resurrection, it doesn't really impact our later. But if we understand the resurrection as implications for our life now, so that when we say and we read in 1 Corinthians that, that, that the power of death has been overcome by the power of Jesus... That those who've fallen asleep, those who are, who are who are dead are now made alive in Christ, that there is this eternal vision that we will now see from John in Revelation, it impacts how we view our later. So the resurrection matters because it speaks to the the most horrible parts of our life today, the most broken parts of this world today. The resurrection of Jesus matters for the way we live because Jesus overcame death with life and we too can have life in his name and for us... And for all, death will not have the final word when we allow the resurrection to be true in our lives. Resurrection shapes our present. It shapes our end. It shapes our dreams and our visions for how God will make all things right. We don't have to just have instincts and trite sayings about that it's all going to be better. We actually have truth because the resurrection is true. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, you and I can be raised to a different kind of life. This is the the end that Revelation is speaking. And so very briefly today, I want us to go back into these verses we've read from Revelation and and look at three questions. What is it? What's it going to be like? What is this end, this this glorious moment at the end that Jesus is revealing to John? What is it? Who is it for? And how can we experience it? So first... What is it like? What is he saying in this scripture in Revelation? And what I want to say is it's a whole lot like here, just totally different. I mean, it's a whole lot like the world you and I live in, but just completely different. I, I mean, I understand when he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. Uh, I, I want you to, to see that it's, there's a newness, but the way this is written, it's not a brand newness. It's not like a, a new version of earth and a new version of heaven that's different from any kind of semblance of what we've experienced in this life now comes on the scene. We don't get carted into this whole new other world where we wouldn't recognize what's there. It's it's creation in its fullness and in its redeemed sense. And this new heaven and the new earth is, is, is something so familiar to us, but just totally different than we've ever experienced. See, everything in our life, everything in our world is pushing towards death. Whether it be our ozone or animals or our own human bodies, everything pushes towards destruction. Everything pushes towards death. The problems of this world, the problems of our creation, the conflict and problems of our human bodies and our human relationships, those are the main story of what life is like on earth. So much so that when we hear other stories of hope, we celebrate them because the reality is that everything is moving towards perishing. And in this new heaven and this new earth, there'll be no pollution, there'll be no global warming. Animals, birds, trees, all of creation flourishing in ways we can't even imagine. I think about when we're out in nature in that, that, that nanosecond of a sunset or that, that picture we've taken that takes us and that feeling of awe and, and everything being larger than us and we get it for a glimpse here on earth and in this new heaven and new earth, I get the sense that that feeling is all the time. In fact, the scripture will go on to say that that it's descended, this holy city descends from heaven to the earth. It's, It's our creation being renewed, restored. Oftentimes we think about revelation as somehow we get zapped up to this new place. But the vision that John has in 21 is that heaven comes down. And in that context, there's a new heaven and a new earth. Something familiar to us, but in an entirely brand new way. There's a level of continuity from the old and it's not a light detail when he says, oh, by the way, there'll no longer be any sea. What what does that mean? See, in the Jewish mind, the sea was the symbol for evil and chaos. And so that's what's totally different. Creation (laughs) renewed, a new heaven and a new earth with no evil, no chaos, no brokenness. The sea has been Eradicated. Earlier in Revelation, I had a friend this week point this out. Revelation 4, we get this image of the sea turning to glass. And the idea there would be that that in God's presence that our chaos in this life can be calmed, it can be stopped for moments. It's there. God sees it, He's with us in it, and it can be, there can be peace experience. But now on this other side, this now we're at Revelation 21, the sea is gone. There's no chaos. No evil. So what is it like? It's like like this, but just totally different. Freedom, fullness, awe, no chaos, no evil. This is a vision of a future that I think many of us would dream for. Verse 2, I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, This detail of Jerusalem is important. This is the place throughout the scripture where God met with his people. This is a a description of intimacy on many levels. One, that God is going to be with his people like he always has been in the scripture. And not just in vicinity with them, but in intimacy. So now we have the language of the bride as a husband waits for their bride. The personal relationship, the personal connection that God will have with his people in this city that comes down from heaven and changes everything and creates a whole new earth. We have a God who is anticipating this day, this end. A God that's preparing for us as a a bride prepares for their husband. So it's new heaven and a new earth, just totally different than everything we know, but familiar. And in this new heaven and new earth, we find that there's a new existence between God and his people. Uh, Listen, the witness of the angel. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. All of that is to say that God and man are getting together the way God always intended humans and God to be. Go back to Genesis. Before sin, before the chaos, before the sea of this world, God's plan and intention was to always to be in relationship with his creation, us, humankind. And in Revelation 21, 3, we get a picture of Jesus now on the throne with his people. The presence of God with his people, intimate. Verse 22, if you keep reading, you will see something fascinating that we've got to point out. In verse 22, it says, John says, guess what I did not see? I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty And the lamb are its temple. See, all of these constructs of a church building, of places of worship. In the Old Testament, the temple was paramount. This was the location where God's presence was. In this new end, a new heaven and a new earth, there is no temple because all of it is God with his people. That the throne is, is tabernacling, the, the scripture says. The, the tabernacle is set up between God and his people. We don't have to, to try to figure out to find God. He will just dwell among his people in fullness and in freedom without distance. Some of you don't know God because every time you try to wrap your brain around God, it, it, I don't understand how that could be. And you might get a moment maybe in that sunset or, or a really wonderful person in your life who loves Jesus and, and there's something inspiring about them. But for you personally, there's a distance between you and God and in this end there will be no distance there will be no doubt there will be no shame there will be no barrier between God and his people there are barriers and doubts and realities to this side of this vision that are difficult for us to understand but in the end it's not about a place it's not about an hour of your week it's not about all the things to, to, to be faithful. It's about just being. Being in a new kind of existence with God, with free. And this vision goes on. We see this relationship, this intimacy with God. Again, it's going to be minus some things that we know all too well. Because we see a humanity without suffering, without pain, without rejection, without sickness, death, trauma, discrimination, Remember, there's no sea. The rider will go on. He's going to wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The promise of this vision is God with his people without the pain, without the tears of death, Without all the difficulty of this world, that there's a a redeemed new earth, new creation, new human being, new relationship with God. This is the end that the scripture calls us to. Uh, So who's going to be there? New creation, new relationship with God, new way of being and living without conflict, without death, without chaos. Who's going to be there? And the vision just tells us two people, two kinds of people, Jesus. Jesus fact Jesus starts speaking up for himself here in verse 5 he Jesus was seated on his throne and he says I am making everything new I know the angel just said I'm doing all this but let me enter this this is how personal I am I'm speaking up now I'm making everything new it's me Jesus I'm the one on the throne he says write this down this is trustworthy stuff what you're hearing and John did thank goodness so Jesus is going to be there the resurrected Jesus that we are worshiping and thinking about and praying to today is that resurrected jesus will be on his throne at the end and it's through that intimacy with jesus and his people and what people are there in the bible just tells us it's one group of people the thirsty in verses six and seven he said to me it's done i'm the alpha the omega the beginning and the end and he says this to the thirsty to the thirsty i will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. It's Jesus and the thirsty. God always wanted to be with his people. In fact, human history and spiritual history Is God's relentless pursuit of being with his people, even when we turn our own way. The very fact that Jesus died was God's reckless love for you and me to say, I love you so much that I'm finding a way for you to be with me. And in this final scene, we see in the scripture, Jesus on his throne giving freely water to those who are thirsty and the water being his presence. So from Genesis to Jesus to now here in Revelation, the thirsty are invited. Not the perfect. Not the well-behaved. Not the morally superior. Not the ones who've memorized all the Bible verses, who've been to church the most. There's a common denominator for who will be at the end, and it's just those of us who are thirsty. Some of you might be thinking, but... But if you knew what I've done, all those things, I'm I'm like, I don't even know what it means to have thirst. And I I believe you do. In fact, the scripture will continue. I don't want you to be shocked if you read this on your own because these are some pretty tough words. Follows in verse 8. After the the thirsty are going to be there, it says this, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars, they'll be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. But see, the thirsty are are not juxtaposed with this list. And by the way, I'm in a lot of that list, not all of it. Don't worry, you don't need to call anybody. Because it's not about being perfect, just it's about being thirsty. It's saying that maybe that list and the other list of things that have come up in my life, I want to turn from that because it hasn't quenched, it hasn't satisfied me. And I want to go somewhere where my thirst can be satisfied. So who's going to be there? Jesus and the thirsty. And how do we join? And this is where it just gets so simple. Just be thirsty. Without cost, the scripture says grace, Jesus offers, offers to satisfy the deepest longings of our life by saying, Come to me. And take a drink, and in in John's, uh, uh, the the Gospel of John, there's this scene with Jesus and the woman at the well. And if you remember how this goes, you know the story. The woman is trying to get water, and Jesus is is up in the conversation with her. He goes, you can drink from this water, you're going to get thirsty again. But I can offer you something that will quench your thirst forever. And what he is promising her, and what he is calling her to, is to drink from the spring and the well of his life, the spring of grace. Because everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The deepest longings of your soul can be satisfied. And it's free. It's without a cost. It's without you cleaning yourself up first and somehow then receiving the gift. It it doesn't require you to do anything except say, I'm thirsty. And to take a drink. And I believe this. I believe there are some of you right now that Jesus is inviting to come take a drink. That you've tried it your own way. You you might have a vision. uh, Not much of a vision what happens later. Because right now life is just so overwhelming. And you've tried different things. Everything from this book to that book. Or this philosophy or this other religion. And at the end they do not satisfy. And Jesus says come drink freely from me. I believe this and I'm getting near the end I believe that there's some of you who you sense an invitation from Jesus to drink but your issue isn't necessarily what Jesus is offering you it's what people like me and a bunch of Christians have done that somehow maybe they've hoarded the well and you haven't felt invited to the water see thirsty people do funny things Thirsty people do funny things, and, and if you've had a bad experience with a fellow thirsty person who's trying to drink from Jesus, and you have felt excluded, you have felt like there was no room for you, or that you weren't good enough for the water. Or they led with all the shame, or or, or, or they're they trying to make you conform into something that just was so strange to you, instead of just offering you the free gift of the water of Jesus. I want to say I'm deeply sorry. And what you'll find out is if you start drinking from this free stream. That's going to happen again. Because on this side of things, there's still the sea. There's still pain. There's still brokenness. But here in this body of Christ, what we're doing, are doing our best to just drink from the free gift of grace of Jesus and to allow that to change us daily. And some days we're not that pretty. But every day Jesus is. And every day, Jesus offers the free gift to drink, to have our thirst be satisfied. We're all thirsty. Some of us drink the water differently. Some of us take up more space. But if you're thirsty today, would you please come? Come to Jesus and take a free drink from the well of grace and watch him satisfy your thirst. Watch him over time, even today, begin to transform what you live for. Transform your hope for tomorrow and how that impacts your today. So are you thirsty? I want to pray for us. And I want to pray to invite for some of you who say, I am thirsty. I'm going to pray that you would ask Jesus to come and to quench your thirst, to give him a try. To sincerely turn to him in faith and to begin a new life. To begin a new journey. To realize that the resurrection doesn't just sit as a footnote in history. But it matters so that you can live a resurrected life. And the journey to a beautiful end. This beautiful end of of flourishing. Of intimacy. And here's the awesome thing about the Bible. As beautiful as this picture is at the end. We get to taste it in this life. You know sometimes those tastes are, are small. Sometimes they're long. Sometimes they go for long seasons. Sometimes it feels dry. But we don't just wait around with some blind hope that one day we'll experience all this, that the promise of the Bible and what I can tell you with all truth from my own life is that I have tasted what we will be in eternity and it is good. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this Easter Sunday. And God, right now, I'm asking those who are listening, if they have sensed from you an invitation to come drink, that they acknowledge their thirst, that they've tried everything else in this world, and they're still thirsty. God, for that group of people, give them the courage to pray this with me now in the silence of their heart or in the loudness of their voice. If that's you this morning, today, Will you please pray this with me? Dear Jesus, I recognize that I have tried so many things to quench my thirst. And this Easter 2020, I'm coming to you. I recognize that the grace of your son Jesus is free and it's for me. God, I pray that you would help me begin this new journey, this new life with you. That I would have hope, not just in this glorious end, but that that vision of a glorious end would give me real hope for today. God, for those are saying something like this or praying something to you who are just maybe crawling up to the water to take a drink I pray God that you would give them courage and hope and a belief that new life can be found today that the whole trajectory of their lives can be changed right now in this moment and that you would come into their hearts and come into their lives and change everything about what life is. And for those who might be so freaked out right now about what you're doing in their hearts and in their lives, God, give them peace. Calm the sea of their brain. Calm the sea of their heart. Wipe every tear from their eye. Help them know what it means that you're on the throne dwelling with us, your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.